As we go to prayer this morning, I would like to le- uh, read a couple of verses from Psalm 89. I will sing of the loving kindness of the Lord forever. To all generations I will make known your faithfulness with my mouth. For I have said, loving kindness will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. Father, as we have studied through these passages of Scripture, we have so well seen, illustrated for us, your loving kindness and your faithfulness. As we recently finished the study of the book of Ruth, we saw your loving kindness and faithfulness to Ruth and Naomi and to Boaz. And Lord, we are seeing this to Hannah and Samuel. And yet, Lord, we know on the other side of the spectrum, there is yet the fact that you call those to account who are in positions of authority and yet uh, fail to do what they know is right to do. And so as we look at the life of Eli, this helps us to better understand the whole character of God and that with justice there is also mercy, and with mercy there is justice. Father, we thank you for the truth of the word which we hold before us each and every day. We ask for your blessing in this class hour, and we pray that as the service goes on for the this hour and next hour that you will bless and strengthen those who are a part of the music program and those who are giving testimonies, that you will be glorified and uplifted. Father, I thank you for each one in this room here this morning and ask that you will minister to the need of each heart according to your divine will. In Christ's name, amen. If you'll turn to the first book of Samuel, the second chapter, beginning at verse 27. Then a man of God came to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, I did not indeed reveal myself to the house, did I not indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt in bondage to Pharaoh's house? And did I not choose them from all the tribes of Israel to be my priests, to go up to my altar to burn incense, to carry an ephod before me? And did I not give to the house of your fathers all the fire offerings of the sons of Israel? Why do you kick at my sacrifice and at my offering which I have commanded in my dwelling and honor your sons above me by making yourselves fat with the choicest of every offering of my people Israel? Therefore the Lord God of Israel declares, I indeed say that your house and the house of your father should walk before me forever, did I indeed say. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me, for those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will break your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. And you will see the distress of my dwelling, in spite of all that I do good for Israel. And an old man will not be in your house forever. Yet I will not cut off every man of yours from my altar, that your eyes may fail from weeping and your soul grieve, and all the increase of your house will die in the prime of life. And this will be the sign to you which shall come concerning your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. On the same day, both of them shall die. But I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and in my soul. And I will build him an enduring house, and he will walk before my anointed always. And it shall come about that everyone who is left in your house shall come and bow down to him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and say, Please assign me to one of the priest's office so that I may eat a piece of bread. God does not allow his people to, con- to continue 
in ways that are detrimental to his name and to their spiritual well-being. And that seems clear from this passage. If you or I go astray spiritually and begin to lead others to do likewise, God will find a way to speak to us. Probably not through a prophet, such as in this particular instance, but he will confront us. And of course, you and I, I think by this time, are well aware of the fact that God most commonly confronts us through his word, which of course is why the Bible is such a vital source of life for us and why it is important for us to know it. Because if we are in his word regularly, and if we make prayer a priority, I don't think we can go very far astray from the path he set before us. We're looking at the man Eli here, and although Eli probably thought he was doing an acceptable job as high priest, we find that God thought otherwise about the situation. In fact, we find that Eli was so far off base that God had to send a prophet who was not even named. We're not even given the name of this prophet. It's very possible that he was the only real prophet in Israel at that particular time because of what we'll read uh, in the next chapter. He sent him to get Eli's attention. Eli, you're not paying attention to me, so he sends a prophet to kind of hammer on him and to get his attention. The prophet confronted Eli with the enormity of the sins of his sons and of his guilt because he had not restrained them. The Lord cut to the heart of the matter by pointing out that Eli's failure to deal with his sons meant that, in effect, he honored his sons more than he honored the Lord. Why? Because he was more fearful of offending his sons than he was of offending the Lord himself. It's interesting that as we read the accusation that God brought through the prophet against Elijah, uh, Eli, that the Lord does not specifically mention what we view would view, of course, as a heinous sin. And we read that back in a previous passage that Hophni and Phinehas, Eli's two sons, were actually carrying on promiscuous sex with other female, with, with the female servants there of the tabernacle. And God doesn't specifically mention that because in, in the passage, he accuses them of making themselves fat with the choicest of every offering of my people. So what God was really saying here and the point that he was driving at was that Hophni and Phinehas despised the offerings of the Lord. And we read that specifically in an earlier passage. And so they took whatever they wanted for themselves, whatever they wanted for themselves. And of course, we read that they took the finest of the meat even before it had been properly offered or prepared. And uh, they, they simply would take it by force, if so. And, of course, they took whoever they wanted, too. If they wanted a, a lady, a woman, they, they took her, too. And so what you have is two individuals who are using the office of the priesthood, the authority of it, to take what they want for themselves and not ministering at all through that office. So what we find here are that, are that, uh, is that God's words against Eli and his house are extremely strong words. Verse 30 indicates, again, as we have seen so many times in Scripture, that God's promises are contingent on the obedience of his people. You've heard, as I've heard, so many people just take Romans 8.28 and always use it to kind of slap on everything. You know, God makes all things work together for good to those that love God. And everybody, anybody can say they love God. But true proof of loving God is obedience. And Christ says so. You are my disciple if you do what I say. He doesn't say you're my disciple if you say you're my disciple. 
you're my disciple if you do what I tell you to do. And, and so it is here. The promises that God had made to Israel and that God had made to the house of Aaron were contingent on the obedience of the high priest of his family. In Exodus 29, we read that God had given the priesthood perpetually to Aaron and to his descendants. This was a perpetual statute. Through the generations, it would be Aaron's family that would inherit the priesthood. That, that promise was later confirmed. Now, you remember the story, and we read it back when we were dealing with the life of Moses, that Israel began to, quote, play the harlot, as the scripture said there, with Moab. And Phinehas, the son of Eliezer, got so livid about the whole thing that he actually took it into his own hands to publicly execute two people who are part of this improper relationship between Israel and Moab. And God lauds that through you know, his leaders there. And in Numbers chapter 25, we have a reconfirmation of the priesthood through Aaron, through Eliezer, to, through Phinehas, a different Phinehas, of course, from this Phinehas, and, of course, it would carry down through until Eli. Eli was a descendant of Aaron. Eli was a descendant of Aaron through a different line than Eliezer, but nevertheless, he was of the priestly line. And therefore, his family was included in this promise that God had made to Aaron. However, God warned him in this verse, and he warns all through this verse, that those who honor him, he will honor. But those who disdain him, he will despise. The translation here is esteem lightly. Esteem lightly doesn't sound very threatening. Uh, the real meaning there is, is despise. Eli would be the last old man in his family. Well, I don't know if I'd like to be born into a family like that with a, with a statement that your great-grandfather was the last old man in this family. Now you'd have to look forward to a short life, I suppose. God was going to break the strength, we're told here, and, and the, the Hebrew word here is literally the arm. And of course, in, to the, in the Hebrew world, the arm was symbolic of, of human strength. And so God was going to break the strength of Eli's line. Now, what did that mean? What, what, what was God going to do? Was God going to take away the proclivity to longevity that existed in that particular family? Well, maybe. Or was it going to be like in the case of Hophni and Phinehas, that untimely death would come to the priestly members, male members of this family? Well, that could be too, and Hophni and Phinehas would certainly stand as an example of that possibility. Could be that they would all face death of unnatural causes, and that's why they wouldn't be old. I think at least a part of the fulfillment of this prophecy is seen in the latter part of the book of 2 Samuel, where... Saul, who is now king, and he was anointed as king by Samuel, where Saul brings about or orders the execution of 85 priests, 85 descendants of Eli are ordered to be executed by Saul because he saw them as allied to David, whom he by this time views as his rival. So as when we get to looking at the life of Saul, we'll see how far Saul deviated from the original uh, faith he seemed to have. In this particular passage, in the uh, verses 32 and 33, we find a very, very sad picture painted for us there. Eli's descendants would continue to serve as priests for quite a while. So God wasn't just cutting Eli's family off right here and now. He, he, uh, 
Hophni and Phinehas would be cut off, but grandsons and others beyond would continue to serve, but would die in the prime of their lives. So they have the opportunity to serve, but not serve really long before God would take them. But they would, learn, they would serve long enough to begin to witness the declension of the worship of God in Israel. And that would be a very, very sad thing. This prophesied decline of tabernacle worship in Israel would begin soon after Eli heard these very words. And it would be for them like it would be today for a pastor to just see his congregation withering away, although he's, he's preaching the word and praying and honoring the Lord, but his congregation is withering away because they're taken up with the things of this world and no longer concerned about the word of God. It would be exactly what these priests would face. Fewer and fewer coming to make sacrifices. Fewer and fewer coming to honor the Lord because they're into other religions and other things. They haven't got time for God. And that's what they would witness. Eli himself would live long enough to hear that the Ark of the Covenant had been lost to a pagan people. Now, you and I cannot even begin to imagine what that meant to Israel. I mean, if I hear of a, of a pastor uh, dying or if I hear of a, a church burning down, that, that's, that's sad. But that doesn't even begin to compare to this. For Israel to lose the ark, I mean, that's where the mercy seat is. That's where the center of God's position in Israel was. If they lost that, it's like they've lost everything. There's no hope left in this world. Yet Eli would live to hear those words. In fact, those words, of course, would kill him if you know the story. His grandsons would live to experience the destruction of Shiloh as the center of God's worship. And they would live long enough to know that the ark was out of Israel for a very long time. The sign of the beginning of the fulfillment of these prophecies was the simultaneous violent death of Hophni and Phinehas, both who would die at the hands of the pagan Philistines. But there's a bright spot. One of the things about Scripture I really love is that God may paint a very dark picture, but almost always there is a bright spot. There is hope. There is hope. The bright spot is found in verse 35 where we read, But I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and in my soul, and I will build him an enduring house, and he will walk before my anointed always. The picture is dark, but it's not lost because God reigns. God rules. When God struck the great King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon because he exalted himself, God said to him, you will eat grass in the field until you acknowledge that God in heaven rules the affairs of man. God rules. God reigns. Picture may dark, be dark. Conditions may become intolerable. But God is still in charge, and it is not lost. Thul Khandra will yet have a voice. God would raise up a faithful priest, a faithful priest to replace Eli, to replace what Hophni and Phinehas should have been. We find uh, only a partial fulfill, uh, fulfillment in the man Samuel. Samuel is not really the focus of verse 35. He's only a partial fulfillment of it. And we discover that as we push on through the writings of Samuel because we discover that neither of Samuel's sons will follow in Samuel's. And therefore, they will not, Samuel's family will not become the, the, the holders of the chief priesthood in Israel. 
The ultimate meaning of this verse, I think, is explained for us rather clearly by a commentator whose name is Eugene Merrill. He says these things, In human terms, this was fulfilled when the priesthood was taken from Abiathar, descended of Aaron's son Ithamar. By the way, Eli was also of the Ithamar line, not of the Eliezer line. And given to Zadok, descended of Aaron's son Eliezer. But in the ultimate sense, the faithful priest and anointed one are one and the same, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is both priest and king. So we could see this, at least in part, as yet another messianic prophecy. I think the statement that Merrill makes here is at least in part supported by Scripture itself. We're not going to go to 1 Kings at this point, but in the second chapter of 1 Kings, we find that Solomon has become anointed king. He's been crowned king in Israel, and he's about cleaning house. Same passage. We find that Solomon appointed Zadok, the priest, in the place of Abiathar. <clears throat> now, why did he do this? What, what was the human reason why Solomon took Abiathar out of his position and replaced him with Zadok? Well, we discover that Abiathar had made a very bad choice. He had chosen to support David's son Adonijah for the throne rather than God's choice, Solomon, for the throne. And as a result, Abiathar was left hanging out there because Adonijah lost and was not made king. And he had been a supporter, and so obviously Solomon couldn't keep someone who had opposed him in the position of high priest, whereas Zadok had supported Solomon all along. He had been David's, you know, really supported David and supported Solomon, and so he receives the priesthood. So what, what that tells us is we can only see events from the human perspective. We cannot see what God is doing behind the scenes so much of the time. What, what's a wonderful thing about the scripture is it often explains what God's been doing behind the scenes. But when you look at history of the last 2,000 years, and, and there is no scripture during the last 2,000 years to explain what God is doing, we can only see the surface event, and we don't know what God has done behind it. But we simply know from statements in scripture that God is in charge. And many people would say, but if God's in charge, why? Why was there a Genghis Khan? Why was there an Adolf Hitler? Why was there a Mao Zedong? Uh, why was there a Pol Pot? And all these vile creatures of history might say, well, go back in the scripture and you'll find there were some pretty vile people back there. Uh, you know, Sargon and Sennacherib were pretty evil men and, Bel and uh, Nebuchadnezzar was no angel either. And, and so what we understand is that basically the flow of history goes, but God controls it in the sense that he brings a point in which he says, thus far and no more. And he cuts them off. I mean, how long was... Hitler said, I have begun the thousand-year Reich. Lasted 12 years. Now, that's, that's a pretty small percentage of what he had prophesied to happen. And it seems to us a long time. And it brought tremendous destruction. But God allowed it only as far as he chose. And so it would be in the case of Abiathar, of Zadok, of Hophni, Phineas, of Eli himself, of Samuel. Let's read on in 1 Samuel, beginning the third chapter. 
Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord before Eli. And word from the Lord was rare in those days. Visions were infrequent. And it happened at that time as Eli was lying down in his place. Now his eyesight had begun to grow dim and he could not see well. And the lamp of God had not yet gone out. And Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. And the Lord called Samuel and he said, Here am I. And he ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he, that is Eli, said, I didn't call you. Lie down again. So he went and lay down. And the Lord called yet again, Samuel. So Samuel rose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he answered, I did not call my son. Go back to bed. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, nor had the word of the Lord yet been revealed to him. So the Lord called Samuel again for the third time, and he rose and he went to Eli, and he said, Here I am, for you called me. And notice the next phrase. Then Eli discerned that the Lord was calling the boy. And Eli said to Samuel, Go lie down, and if it shall be, if he calls you, that you shall say, Speak, Lord, for thy servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. I'm sure we all have our own little mental picture of what was going on here. Year after year, Samuel faithfully continued in his priestly training and in his service to this man, Eli. And he is growing. Now, he's no longer three years old. I think he's probably in his, in his teens at this particular point in time when this event takes place. These are the latter days of the Shophatim. The era of the judges is coming to an end. And Israel had become so apostate that we're told in this passage that it was extremely rare for anyone to receive a vision or a word from the Lord. The word translated vision in this passage refers to a divine revelation expressed through a prophet. So what it is saying it was that there were very few prophets in those days. And that's why I said the unknown prophet who came to speak to Eli might have been the only prophet in the land at the time, the only true prophet in the land at the time. Since prophets were scarce, and the people of Israel didn't want to hear, <clears throat> hear the prophets anyway, God wasn't speaking. God wasn't giving visions. And that, of course, was not the only time in history that that happened. Let me read you a few sad words from the prophet Amos. In the 8th chapter, the 11th verse, we read, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send famine on the land, not a famine for bread or a thirst for water, but rather for hearing the words of the Lord. And the people will stagger from sea to sea, and from north even to the east, and they will go to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. It's funny how when the word of the Lord is available and abundant, so many take it for granted, ignore it, act as if it's not important, and then when it becomes scarce and rare, suddenly they begin to look for it, and then they can't find it. That's the way it would become for Israel, and I pray that's not what's going to happen in this country, but it sure is headed in that direction. But that would change at least for Israel, temporarily, in a radical way, because God was in the process of raising up Israel's first truly great prophet. A powerful voice that would proclaim 
the word of the Lord in Israel and hold the country's feet to the fire. In this passage, we read about God's initial call, initial encounter with this man Samuel, or I should say Samuel's initial encounter with the Lord face to face. We discover from this passage that this was a night vision. We know it was a night vision not only because they were in bed, but because we're told that the lamp of the Lord had not yet gone out. Now we might say, aha, but that's a spiritual statement. <laughs> that Israel is in increasing spiritual darkness, but the lamp hadn't yet gone out. And I, I, you know, I won't argue against that because it sure looked that way in Israel. But I think it also had a physical statement that was being made here too. The pure gold seven-branched menorah that burned in the tabernacle, in the holy place of the tabernacle, was to be filled with olive oil, trimmed and lit every day from sunset to sunrise. It was to burn all night long as a symbol of the light of the glory of God in his place. And it was supposed to be kept burning by the priests. And so the statement that the lamp had not yet gone out tells us that it was nighttime because that was when the lamp was burning and not yet gone out probably means it was in the latter part of that time, the wee morning hours. It should be understood that the word that's translated in this passage as temple does not refer to temple in the sense of the later temple that would be built by Solomon, but refers to the tabernacle, but it refers to the whole tabernacle precinct. Not only the tabernacle itself, but the altar and, and the, uh, tent, uh, the, um, the cloth-walled area all around the tabernacle. That whole thing was what was referred to here as the temple. And when we read in this passage, it almost sounds like that Samuel and Eli were actually sleeping uh, in the Holy of Holies because, you know, where the Ark of the Covenant was. Well, they weren't sleeping in the Holy of Holies. Only the high priest could go in there, and that only one time of year. You, you, they were not sleeping there. And they were not even sleeping in the holy place. They were sleeping outside the actual tabernacle tent itself in little tents or cubicles that had been set up for that very purpose probably in the very early morning hours while both men were sleeping, both Samuel and Eli and other priests that uh, may have been around at the time, God spoke to Samuel. Now, the words were audible. Samuel heard a voice, just like you're hearing my voice, I hope. And since Samuel had never heard the word of the Lord before, an audible voice, I should say, never heard the audible voice of the Lord before, it was natural for him to think, well, what was that? Oh, Eli's calling. Well, I mean, that was perfectly natural. And, and so he, he runs off to, to Eli. Now, notice, the, notice what this is telling us here. He, Samuel is sleeping. He awakens to this voice. He thinks it's Eli, so he instantly jumps up to find out what Eli wants. Now, contrast that to Eli's own sons, Hophni and Phinehas. <laughs> who wouldn't listen to the voice of their father at all. Even when it's spoken to them in, in a way that's, that's supposed to straighten their lives out, they still wouldn't listen. They wouldn't pay attention. Samuel, the obedient one, his own sons, the disobedient ones. When he discovered that Eli had not called him, Samuel returned to his bed, and I think he was a bit puzzled. He probably thought to himself, well, maybe it was in, just in my dream. Maybe I was dreaming I heard a voice and didn't really hear a voice. And so he went back uh, to lie down again. And, and we read in verse 
uh, 6, that the whole thing was repeated again. He hears the voice, hops up, runs to Eli, says, you called. Oh, I didn't call, son, go back to bed. And, and uh, in verse 7 is interposed here so that the reader might understand why it was that Samuel didn't recognize the voice of Yahweh. Verse 7 says, Now Samuel did not know the Lord, yet know the Lord, nor had the word of the Lord been revealed to him. That statement, that Samuel did not know the Lord, is not to be interpreted as meaning that Samuel had no belief or faith in Yahweh. That is not what it's saying. Samuel was a young man who was learning to love the Lord and learning to serve the Lord, and, and he was raised in a godly home. This, this young man was committed to the service of the Lord to the extent that he understood. What it meant was that he had never heard the voice of the Lord before. He did not know the voice of the Lord because he had never heard God speak to him before. He didn't recognize the voice of the Lord as God spoke to him. He had never received an individual revelation from God. God had never spoken directly to him in that sense. He had heard about the Lord. He had been taught of the Lord by Eli and, and through the knowledge of the scripture that he was gaining. Well, God is very persistent, is he not? God doesn't just give it one shot and give up. Otherwise, you and I would not be here. The earth would not be here. <laughs> it had been all over way back in the Garden of Eden. So a third time, God called, Samuel, Samuel. He heard the voice, and he ran to Eli again. And Eli was awakened again. Interestingly enough, Eli apparently did not hear the voice. Samuel only heard the voice. Now remember, we're not talking about solid walls here. Everything was tent. So obviously the voice was not a booming voice like God's voice from Sinai. It was a still small voice that spoke to the man Samuel himself, to the young man Samuel. But we're told there in, uh, in the third chapter, in uh, verse 8, it dawns on Eli that something's going on here. And we're told that Eli discerned that the Lord was calling the boy. Now, that's almost a bit amazing when you think about it after what we read about Eli and how God castigates this man and, and basically tells him that, you know, your priesthood is, is finished in the long run. Uh, and yet, he, he, I, I don't think he was a man who in his own heart had totally rejected God. I think he was just a very weak man in his faith. And yet God gave him discernment. <clears throat> God gave him discernment. And it dawned on him that God was speaking to the young man. God must be calling why, why would you think, you know, if, if you were in that situation, why would he think that? Why would he think God was going? Had Eli heard God speak in such a way? Probably not. I think it was God's spirit enlightening his spirit that this was what was happening. So he said to Samuel, go back to bed. And if you hear the voice again, these are the words you're to say. Speak, Lord, speak Yahweh, for your servant is listening. I think Samuel went back to bed, and I think he was bewildered. <laughs> I think he was a bit frightened. I mean, God, God is speaking to me? This, this mighty being that we worship, he is speaking to me? I think he was thrilled, though. What does God want to say? What is God going to say to me? Well, let's read on from verse 10. Then the Lord came and stood 
and called as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for thy servant is listening. And the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel, at which both the ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. In that day I will carry out against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. For I have told him that I am about to judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knew, because his sons brought a curse on themselves, and he did not rebuke them. And therefore I have sworn to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned, atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Those are pretty harsh words. Samuel went back to bed, and as he laid there, I think he was wondering, will God speak again? Will I yet hear the voice? But you know, I, I can't help but believe that through his mind was running the thought, but why? Why would God call me? I am the least in God's house. I am but a young lad. I am in training. I am nobody. I have no responsibilities of significance. Why would God call me? And those, of course, would be legitimate thoughts. Yet I've heard the testimony on numerous occasions of men and women who have said, when I was eight, when I was nine, when I was ten, God called me to serve him in this way, and I know it as clear as I know anything. It may not have been an audible voice, but God spoke to their spirits, and they heard the call of the Lord. As we look at this particular passage, I don't think, I don't think Samuel had to wait very long. I don't think he was going, oh, you know, and I think he was awake, and I think he was ready, and I don't think the Lord kept him waiting very long. I think that he was wide awake is indicated by the passage because it says, the Lord came and stood and called. I think those words imply that there was a physical appearance here that this was a theophany, that not only did God speak, but that God appeared to Samuel. And for a young man, that would have been so impressive to see one standing before him whose voice he knew to be the voice of Yahweh. And when the Lord called, Samuel answered as Eli had instructed him with one exception, which you may have noted when we read the passage. He left out the divine name. Eli said to say, Speak, Lord, for thy servant is listening. And Samuel said, Speak, for thy servant is listening. He left out the divine name. Capital Lord there is the Hebrew word Yahweh. Why did he do that? Was it an omission that was intentional or was it accidental? Well, I don't think we can determine, but it seems to me it could be that he was fearful of using the divine name. He was young, he was immature, he was just growing, he was just learning, and, and he was learning how mighty is the name of God, and, and to use it may have been a fearful thing to him. But God goes on as if nothing happened. It wasn't as if it bothered God any, because God knew the heart of Samuel. The message that the Lord delivered to Samuel, I think was very, very hard for Samuel to accept. Eli had not only been Samuel's teacher and Samuel's guardian, but for the bulk of the year, except at the time of the sacrifice when, when uh, Elkanah and, uh, and Hannah came up to worship there, why 
Eli was his surrogate father. He was his foster father. He was the father figure that he knew. Whatever were Eli's failings, whatever were Eli's weaknesses, Samuel had grown up under this man's tutelage, and I think he deeply cared for Eli. I think he loved Eli. Uh, Eli not only stood before him in effect as a human father figure, but as a spiritual father figure. And so the message that God gave concerning Eli, I think fell like a hammer blow on this young man, Samuel. And when the Lord said to him, he was about to do something that would make people's ears tingle when they heard it. I think chills went up and down Samuel's spine as he heard those words from the Lord. I don't know as I've ever heard words that actually made my ears tingle, except when played through certain <laughs> instruments, you know. <laughs> In the days we're talking about, yes, they had cymbal and harp and all the rest of it, but they didn't have electronic amplification to blow the... Can you imagine the tabernacle? <laughs> the walls of the tabernacle flying out in the breeze, you know. I don't think so. But anyway, the implication, of course, was that they would hear words that would cause their hearts to quiver in horror as they heard those words about what God had done. Well, I, I want to say something about what all that means, and we don't have time today, so next Sunday we'll talk about what that horror might be and see a couple of other examples of when God said that uh, in other circumstances. John, yeah. something that jumps out at me today in the third verse, uh, Samuel was lying down in the tabernacle <laughs> where the ark of God was. What when baby is supposed to be? Yeah, I mean, he's really speaking in the presence of God. Uh, what, a way to, what a way to grow up. Yeah, yeah. And I don't think but that could help but impact his right. life as he was growing up.